There are some narratives and stories in the Bible that transcend the church, that make its way outside the walls of Christianity and into even the halls of our culture. Stories so well known that they get brought up, feels like every March in the story of David and Goliath. During March Madness, it's going to be Cinderella team, David, Goliath, who's going to win? One story that's made its way outside of Christianity into common culture. Or Noah and the Ark. Everyone seems to know that story, even if you haven't been to church, you're familiar with the story. I grew up in Louisiana, and my pediatrician had the scene painted like in the lobby of Noah and all the animals happy walking to the ark and rainbows in the background. And as I grew up and began to see what the story of Noah and the ark actually was, it was a story of God's judgment against worldwide sin, and everyone dies except this one family. I'm like, that's not a scene to put in a pediatrician's office, it seems like. It's not just some happy, oh, it's great. It's, a, it's one of the greatest scenes of God's judgment. But anyway, there it is, nonetheless. And our text today is another one of those stories. It's made its way into the culture of, of Noah, not Noah, Moses parting the Red Sea. This story of Moses leading the people out of Egypt, God delivering them through the ten plagues as we've seen, has been walking through Exodus. We get now to the great scene of deliverance as Egypt is bearing down on the Israelites and Moses reaches out his staff in his hand. God parts the waters the Israelites go through. This is the great scene, right? I, I remember on Facebook a few months ago, I saw a high school basketball game. It had tons of people there. The student section was packed, going all the way up to the roof. And one of the students walked out to the very bottom of the student section. He had on this robe, this long white beard, and a staff. And he walked to the very bottom of the student section. And he took the staff and banged it on the ground. And the student section split open. And he ran up the top. And I was like, that's the sermon I'm preaching. It's made it even to a high school basketball game. I doubt Moses would have envisioned that whenever he did that. But nonetheless, here it is. There is a danger with stories like these. If you've grown up in the church, you hear them so often, we will gloss past what God has for us here. Or there's a danger in seeing the uniqueness and the beauty and the grandeur of the story that we miss the point that's trying to be portrayed. We get caught up in the narrative and we miss what God's trying to teach his people through it. And so as we look at Exodus 14 and 15 here this morning, we won't read all of it, we'll kind of walk through. There's really just two points. There's our two geographic locations in these two chapters. Chapter 14 takes place on one side. Chapter 15 takes place on the other side of the Red Sea. And those are our two points. The western shore in chapter 14, verses 1 through 31. And then the eastern shore, chapter 15, verses 1 through 21 where we're going to see the Israelites in these two locations, the western shore of the Red Sea and the eastern shore of the Red Sea, and walk through this narrative and see what their experiences were like on each of these shores, seeing how that can help us today. And then at the end, ultimately get to one main point of what I think this text is trying to teach us. So first, chapter 14, we need to jump in because there's a lot to cover here. Chapter 14, it begins in verses 1 through 9 with the Israelites apparently wondering. God has saved them from, the, uh, from Egypt, released them after the ten plagues. The Passover has just happened. Pharaoh says, let them go. Get them out of here. And so they leave around midnight. In the middle of the night, they go and they begin to wander. And we see in chapter 13 that God is leading them with a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. He's leading them exactly where he wants them to go. What's interesting is that the direct path to the promised land goes through the land of the Philistines. That's the way to go. But God takes them a different route, bouncing them all around. And it looks like they're confused. It looks like that they don't have a clue where they're going. And God does this so that Pharaoh will see it. God hardens his heart and he goes, hey, we've made a mistake. They're wandering the desert. They don't know what they're doing. Let's go and get them again. But God's the one leading them through this kind of roundabout path to the promised land. So imagine if I tell you, hey, after church, leave and drive to Groveland. How are you going to get there? I'm going to go, get on Highway 50, and go straight there. That's the direct path. Imagine, though, Pharaoh seeing these people. Uh, and they were given directions to go to Groveland. It'd be like the Israelites and saying, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down south on 27, 
East on 192, 192, awesome road, love it, no traffic at all, love the wizard stores with a big wizard and all the like really cool and unique uh, gifts and souvenirs that you can get, awesome, love 192. Then I'll go up I-4, specifically engineered to never have any traffic. It's going to be outstanding. Then I'll hop on 408 and the turnpike because I love to pay for my ride. And then I'll get over and take the back roads up through uh, Howie in the Hills and Popka, and eventually make it over to Groveland. That's the path the Israelites were taking here. There was a direct path, and then there was the path that they were taking. And Pharaoh sees this, and he's like, what are you doing? Right, verse 3, chapter 14, Pharaoh will say to the Israelites, they're wandering around the land in confusion, and now the wilderness has boxed them in. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He gets his guys together and unleashes his army to go and get Israel, to bring them back to slavery. Because they are apparently wandering. God has them camp right in front of the Red Sea. They got their tents, everything's unpacked, unloaded. There they are, the Red Sea in front of them, the wilderness surrounding them. And then we get to verses 10 through 12. As Egypt is bearing down on the Israelites, the Israelites see them. Look at verse 10. Pharaoh approaches and the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians coming after them. So not only had they been wandering, not only did they not have a clue where they were, now they're in camp in front of the Red Sea, and they look up, and Egypt, the mightiest army on the earth, is now coming for them. These are not trained soldiers. These have been centuries of slaves. They're tired. They just left at midnight not long ago. They're tired. They're not trained for war, and they're facing the greatest army in the face of the planet. So what's their response? Well, God just delivered them from, from Egypt. Surely it's going to be filled with faith, confidence, and their God to deliver them yet again. Here's the Israelites' response in verse 11. They said to Moses, uh, hey, Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Is that, is that the plan? This is an efficient plan? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Just leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. That's the Israelites' response. After all the incredible things they had just seen, that's their response. They're faithlessly grumbling. Later on in the Old Testament, Psalm 106, the psalmist describes, looks back at this scene, describes it this way. Psalm 106, verses 6 and 7. Both we and our ancestors have sinned. We've done wrong and acted wickedly. Our ancestors in Egypt did not grasp the significance of your wondrous works or remember your many acts of faithful love. Instead, they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. So here the Israelites rebel and sin against God who just delivered them from centuries of slavery. Now, if you're God, how do you respond in that moment? Seriously? Seriously. Do you not remember all the incredible things I've just done, and you think now this is going to stop me? Fine, go back to Israel. Go, go back. You think it's better in Egypt? Go ahead. Why don't you go ahead? Tell me how much better it is there. That's how sinful Caleb responds in that moment. But how does God respond? We see in verses 13 and 14, he tells and leads Moses to be able to lead this way in verses 13 and 14. Moses says to the people in response to their grumbling, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. Isn't that so good? Don't be afraid. With an unconquerable enemy bearing down on you, don't fear. Stand still. Be quiet. Some of your translations may say be silent. Some, the NIV translate this as, as be still. It's this beautiful picture of the Israelites being told, here, listen, be still. The Lord will fight for you. He will accomplish your salvation today. There's incredible hope in that. Now, here's what it's not saying. It's not saying, hey, listen, Israelites, don't do anything. Just like 
lounge back, don't do anything, it's going to be fine, right? This is, there's always misapplication. People love to take verses right out of the context and apply it to their lives in a way that the original text never meant. We'll take a verse like this out of the Bible and go, oh, the Lord will fight for you. You must be still. That's great. I, need, I really want this new promotion at work, so I don't, I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just going to be still. The Lord will fight for me. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to believe for it. I'm going to believe it into existence. It's going to happen. I just need to be still. I'm not even going to go to work anymore. <laughs> be still. The Lord will fight for me. That's what the text says. Of course, that's not what the text means. That's why the greatest hurdle in reading and comprehending our Bible is the, uh, is the interpretation of the text. Then you get to the application. We like to flip it around and apply it before we understand what it means at all. We have to understand the text. And so here, what the text is not saying is, Israel, don't do anything. God will do it all for you because, look at the next verse in 15. What does God say? Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. Tell them to get a move on. Why are you just sitting here crying, grumbling, complaining? They need to move, and you need to lift up your staff and stretch out your hand. So, yes. The Israelites needed to be still. They needed to be quiet. They needed to be silent. But what that meant was not that they had nothing to do. What it meant is that they had nothing to do to be able to accomplish the victory. They needed to understand their responsibility and trust to God what his responsibility was. He would win the battle, but they still had things to do. They had to break camp. I'm just going to sit around then um, waiting for God to do everything. And they weren't going to do anything. This is, this is what we think. God, make me just like Jesus, and I'm not going to do anything. Well, he's told us how to be like Jesus. Come and gather together with a local congregation of people. Don't neglect to gather together, as is the habit of some, but spur one another on to love and to good deeds. Open up this book that he's given to you. He's spoken to you. You want to know what God... I love, we had Taylor Hines, one of our friends from a, a neighboring church, come he preached, if you want to know what God says, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. If you want to hear him speak audibly, read the Bible out loud. <laughs> he's spoken to us. He's given us, he's shown us how to be able to see what he is like, to be shaped and formed into the image of Jesus, to pray. Friends, there are means, ordinary means of grace that God has given us to help us become and look more like Jesus. There's responsibility on our part, but we then trust that he's the one that's using it all to form us into Jesus. Being still does not mean that we abdicate any responsibility from our lives. It means that we own what we are responsible for and leave to God what he will do. Worry and fear begin to rise in us when we start to try to take control of things that are outside of our responsibility. Don't do that. Be still. Be quiet. Don't try to do what only God to do. I promise, he is a lot better at being God than you are. He holds the universe together by the power of his word. We have a hard time getting to church by 10 a.m. in the morning. He's better at this. Friends, you're responsible for being a faithful parent, but you're not responsible for the decisions that your children make. Be still and leave that to God. You're responsible for the type of employee that you will be at work, but you're not responsible for what your coworkers think or how your boss acts. Be still and leave the rest to God. You're responsible to share the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ with people that are near to you but far from God. But you are not responsible for the choice that they make in their salvation. Be still and leave that to God. When we try to step in and take control of our world or our eternity, we are in effect saying, God, you know what? You're okay at doing this, but I think I'll have a little bit more focus here. I think I can step in and do a better job. I'll just take it from here. And friends, that results in stress, busyness, and worry. But God graciously tells us the same thing that he tells the Israelites. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be still. This is God's response in 13 and 14. Then we see him step in and do just what he said he would do. He finally defeats the Egyptians, verses 15 through 28. So Moses does exactly that, raises his staff, stretches out his hand, 
as the uh, Egyptians are bearing down around them. God says he's going to receive glory from this. This is the whole point of what it is that he's doing. Verse 17, I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army and his chariots and horsemen. As you read through 14 as a whole, you'll hear chariots are mentioned a lot in this chapter. Part of the reason is that Moses is highlighting how much more advanced the army of Egypt was than Israel. Egypt had the greatest technology available in its day. Chariots that that were unable to be fought against by a measly army like Israel. They had this great army, but God would receive glory through it. And then verses 19 and 20, we see that in the midst of this, Israel is being surrounded by Egypt, but God in his pillar of cloud then surrounds Israel and keeps them separate from Egypt and protects them overnight as Israel then breaks their camp, packs things up. You got to think, it wasn't just, uh, oh, they just decide to leave. They had to pack up everything that they had unpacked. Every single Sunday, there's a group that gets here early and sets up the chairs and the pipe and drape, and afterwards, they tear it all down. That doesn't just happen instantly, as all the ops people on our team say amen. And friends, it was the same for hundreds of thousands of people as they needed to break camp. They needed time. And God, in his grace, we see in 19 and 20, God surrounds the Israelites with his pillar of cloud as it moves from in front of them and stood behind them and came between the Egyptian and the Israelite forces. And he surrounded them while they broke camp and were prepared. And then we get to 21, and Moses famously stretches out his hand, takes his staff, the Red Sea parts. The Lord drives the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. Later in Isaiah, it says that God turned the sea into a road. And the waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground and the waters like a wall to them on the right and a wall to them on their left. Imagine being in that crowd and walking through that sea. And you see water rising above you on each side. It's like going through the tunnels at SeaWorld with, you know, going with water all around you, but there's no tunnel. It's just water. You can see the fish swimming by. And you feel this praise and worship of God who's doing this, and at the same time fear knowing that this isn't possible. Is this just gonna give way? And the Israelites walk through. And the Egyptians see them. And God again hardens their hearts and they decide that they're going to go in after them. This is a great plan. Well, the water's held up for that long. We'll then go in after them. So Egypt chases them, verses 23 to 28. God throws them into confusion. Wheels start coming off. They don't know what to do. And Egypt begins to recognize something is at play here. Again, it took them that to realize that God was doing something. The waters dividing wasn't enough to go, you know what, maybe God doesn't want us to capture the Israelites. It took the chariots going into confusion, and they finally see in verse 25, well, the Lord is fighting for Egypt, or the Lord is fighting against Egypt. This is God, we need to do something here. And then in verse 26, the Lord tells Moses, stretch out your hand again, as Israel's now on the eastern side of the shore. And whenever he stretches his hand out, waters collapse. And at daybreak, I love this scene, verse 27, at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. That's an important detail. Moses doesn't just throw in because he's a good author. The point of noting that it was at daybreak, again, we saw in the 10 plagues, the the ninth plague was the darkness that covered the Egyptian land. And seeing that in the plagues, God was showing his strength over the false gods and the idols of Egypt. And the greatest god in Egypt was the sun god, Ra. And that was an expression of God's dominance over Ra there in the 10th plague that he could not rise again, but God kept the land dark. And here at the Red Sea, whenever Egypt was beginning to be surrounded by water at daybreak, surely then their great God would rise from the depths and step in to save them and fight against this God of Israel. But at daybreak, there was no one who could stand against the Almighty. And the Egyptians trying to escape from it, and the Lord threw them into the sea. And the water, verse 28, came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. Friends, people try to explain away miracles in the Bible. And people have tried to explain away this miracle. Saying that there was some 
uh, either natural phenomenon or maybe just even like a shallow part of water that they walked through. I was reading the story of one pastor, um, Donald Bridge, who tells this story of a liberal preacher one day who visited a church. And this liberal preacher didn't believe in the miracles of God. They had a very natural understanding of the world. And the minister was talking about the crossing of the Red Sea. Someone in the congregation shouted when it got to this point in the text, praise the Lord, taking all them children through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle. Now, the minister, who did not believe in miracles, was annoyed at this intervention. So, rather condescendingly, he then told the congregation that the Israelites were probably in marshland with an ebbing tide. So they were simply wading through six inches of water. In response to this, the same voice as before shouts out, Praise the Lord, drowning all the Egyptians in six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. (laughs) Friends, no matter what it was that God did here, the timing and the way in which this happened, we know that this was miraculous. There is no explaining way as God stepped in to divinely and sovereignly and in a unique way, unbeknownst to history, to separate the waters of the Red Sea and to lead his people through and then swallow up the Egyptians behind them. And what's left in verses 29, 30, and 31? The Israelites walk through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall on them to the right and to the left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. As they looked back, they saw nothing but the bodies of their enemies strewn across the shore of the Red Sea. Verse 31, when Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. They're free. They no longer have an enemy. And here on the eastern on the western shore as they uh, cross through, we see that God has now redeemed them, adopted them, delivered them, surrounded them, guided them, protected them, and defeated their greatest enemy. And all of these incredible blessings were given to these people. And here's the question to have. What did they do? Apart from grumble and complain already throughout the story, what did they do? Here's all they did. They believed God and hid themselves behind the blood of the Lamb. And God did the rest. What did Israel experience on the western shore? When they were there on the shore as Egypt was coming down around them, they experienced worry, doubt, fear, uncertainty. They faced the imminent threat of an unconquerable enemy. That was their experience on the western shore. Friends, but God stepped in and he intervened. He turned that sea into a sidewalk. He led his people to safety. Now in front of them was his promised land and behind them were the bodies of their enemies on the shore of the Red Sea. What they were so afraid of hours before now lay defeated and conquered by God. And what's their response now on the other shore? What's the first thing that they do now that they've been set free completely? That's what we see in chapter 15. The first thing they do is they sing. And I love it. Some of you, I see some people are like, I don't like to sing. This isn't a good point. Listen, God has made us all to be able to be a singing people. Is what we see throughout. This goes all the way back to Exodus. God delivers his people, and in response to it, we sing. It's one of the things that separates Christianity from other religions. We are a singing religion. God's people gathering together, singing his praises for his deliverance of us whenever we were surrounded by an unconquerable enemy, and he delivered us, and he now gives us all the blessings and the inheritance of heaven, delivering us, redeeming us, guiding us, holding us, adopting us, and defeating our great enemy, not because of anything that we've done, but because we have hidden ourselves in faith behind the blood of the Lamb, that we then stand as God's redeemed people, pilgrims together, headed to our promised land. And what do we do on the way? We sing. And so chapter 15, we see the song that Moses writes on the shore. So on the eastern shore, what happens? Verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1, Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. Moses is the first great folk singer-songwriter in history, recorded here in Exodus chapter 15. There's four general chunks in this song. 
We see that the song is comprised of praise to God. See that in verses one through three, praise to God. Secondly, it's composed of judgment to Egypt, verses four through 12. Third, there's a warning to nations in verses 14 to 16. And finally, the the culmination of the song is safety to Israel, seen in verse 13 and verses 17 and 18. Praise to God, judgment to Egypt, warning to nations, safety to Israel. This is what the song's made of. First, we see that there's praise to God. This is what then is delivered on the eastern shore. This is what they do. On the western shore, there was worry. On the eastern shore, now there's worship. And they sing this song. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Here's the first thing to notice about this song. Look at who it's directed to at the beginning and look at who the focus is. It's focused at God. Praising him, exalting him for who he is and what he's done. It is not me-centered. It is not Israelite-centered. It is God-centered. It is God-focused. I will sing to the Lord. He is highly exalted. He is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Not only is it focused on God, but it also has a personal nature to it. Do you see that pronoun throughout, especially in verse 2? My strength. My song, my salvation, my God. There's a personal sense. We need to make sure we understand that pronoun. Israel is not saying that they own God as though he is mine. It's, 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 It's relating this identification and personal relationship with. It's the difference between, imagine yourself, the difference between being a fan of a team and being the owner of a team. Mississippi State is my team. All the highs and all the, all the lows. They're my team. People come to me and say, hey, who's your team? I say, Mississippi State. They're my team. What I don't mean by that is I own them. What I do mean by that is I identify with them in such a way that their joys are my joys, their victories are my victories, and their losses, like the one last night to Missouri, are my losses. It's an identification with there's a deeply emotional connection that's there. But an owner of a team owns it. You think of any uh, NFL, major league owners. They own the team. They took their money. They bought them. They do what they want to do with the team. When someone says, who's your team? And someone says, uh, the New Orleans Saints, what they mean is it's their team. They bought it. And we need to understand that when we use this pronoun, when it's used here, my God, it does not mean that we own him. It does not mean that we get to shape and form him however we want. It means that we have an identification with him, that his victory is our victory. There's a deeply emotional relationship and connection that is there. We do not own him. We identify with him. And even more bizarrely, he identifies with us. He is my God, my strength, and my song. But third, what we see here in this praising to God, we see it's God-focused. It's what this understanding and pronoun word my means. But most importantly is verse 3. I think this is honestly the point of this entire narrative, chapters 14 and 15. I think this is the summary. This is the point. We'll come back to it even more at the very end and drive more into it. Here's the conclusion and what is being taught in this text. It's this, that the Lord is a warrior and the Lord is his name. God has now ultimately and finally answered Pharaoh's question from chapter 5 when he first heard Moses say that he needed to let God's people go. What was Pharaoh's question? Who is the Lord? God has now answered definitively, the Lord is a warrior and the Lord is his name. That is who the Lord is. And we'll come back to that at the very end. So it begins with praise to God there in verses one through three and then shifts to judgment to Egypt, verses four through 12. Moses recounts what God does in beautiful poetic language. These people were drowned in the sea. Verse five, the floods covered them and they sank to the depths like a stone. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Your right hand shattered the enemy. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. Verse eight, the waters heaped up at the blast from your nostrils. 
The current stood firm like a dam. The watery depths congealed in the heart of the sea. Here's what the enemy said. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified at their expense. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you, Lord, blew with your breath and the sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Moses is recounting this judgment that happens to Egypt and concludes in verse 11, again, with that question of what God was communicating through it all. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? Is a rhetorical question, which if we were to answer, the answer would be, Lord, who is like you? The answer is no one. Not the thousands of God and gods in Egypt could form any kind of Avengers assembly team to be able to go against the Almighty. There was no one like God. There is no one like God. And there will never be anyone like God. Who is like our God amongst all the gods, all the false gods, all of the idols, all the things that the world will throw at us? Friends, the answer is that there is no one. This is what the judgment against Egypt was saying as God brought judgment against their gods. We saw in chapter 12, there is no one who is like him. He is the Lord. He is a warrior and the Lord is his name. That is the conclusion of this judgment that's brought to Egypt in verses 4 through 12. But it doesn't just stay in Egypt. But it goes outside even then as a warning to the nations as Israel will travel in from Egypt now across the Red Sea and ultimately to the promised land. They will encounter other nations along the way. And this is what Moses writes in verses 14 and 16 as a warning that now goes out to these nations. That when the peoples hear, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan will panic. Terror and dread will fall on them. They will be as still as a stone because of your powerful arm. Until when? Until your people pass by, Lord. Until the people whom you purchased passed by. Moses is saying this was not just meant to be judgment to Egypt, but also a warning to the nations as they walk through. Seeing and looking at the greatness of the wonder and the power and the might of God and what would stand for anyone that then comes against God's people as they then will have to face God themselves. But the point here in this song, kind of the emotional climax of this song, we see in verse 13, and verses 17 and 18, as Moses also writes about the safety that's meant to Israel. Verse 13 says this, Lord, with your faithful love, you will lead the people that you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Moses is helping the people, putting into song. We already see the song's popular. It's already a Billboard Top 100 hit in Israel as verses 19 through 21 show that Miriam, uh, Moses' sister, gets a tambourine in one hand and all the women out with her and they begin to sing this song, verse 21. It's already sweeping the nation. It is the Beatles of the early Israel movement. Terrible, I should have thought about that before I said it, but nevertheless, here we are. The song's getting into people's hearts. And what does Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, want to get into people's hearts? Remembering what God has done, but also the promise. The promise that tells them, hey, you, remember what God has done. He redeemed you and he purchased you. Verse 13 and 16. Look in the past. Remember what God did. He redeemed you and he purchased you. Also, look at the present. He is leading, guiding, and bringing Verse 13 and verse 17, God is the one who's carrying you. He's the one that's promised to bring you. And where is he bringing you to? You look in the future, he's going to plant you in a prepared place with him as he reigns forever and ever. God is wanting through Moses to write this song to get down into the hearts of people the promises, his past, present, and future promises that his God is a God of covenant, that it is his faithful love. That's what that word means. It's his 
faithful love that will lead them. So even when they're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And he has redeemed them and purchased them. He is leading, guiding, and bringing, and he will plant them in a prepared place, that God prepared the place for them. He is the one that has established the sanctuary already. And that image of God's mountain, his dwelling, and his sanctuary is an image of his presence in and amongst his people. God is saying, I will bring you to live with me. I will be your God and you will be my people and we will dwell together. And we see this imperfectly take place as God then gives instructions at the end of Exodus to build their tabernacle. As God's presence then dwells in the tabernacle amongst his people. It's not ultimately fulfilled until later. God is telling his people to do this. And I love that he does it through song. I think song and music have a unique way of penetrating and bringing things from our heads down into our hearts. Helps bridge that 12-foot gap, 12-inch gap, one foot. Some of you may be really tall. It may be a 12-foot gap. I don't know. That 12-inch gap that sometimes, how do we get stuff from here to here? Friends, music has a uniquely powerful way of doing that. And that's not by accident. God made it. God designed it that way. That's why I love, I love the songs that we sing here. I heard one pastor call them. They're sermons that people actually remember. As we sing songs and beauty and truth, we then walk out of here and we continue to sing. There's something about it. It gets stuck in our head and then it brings its way down into our heart. And God is wanting to work these things into the hearts of his people. And friends, it wasn't just for Israel. It's also for us. Those promises, past, present, and future promises of redeeming people in the past, leading, guiding, and bringing people in the present, and ultimately bringing them to himself to dwell with him forever, that's not just a promise to Israel, friends. That's a promise to any single person who trusts in Jesus. Sounds similar to me to Philippians 1.6. Paul writes to the church in Philippi and says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you, God began, he purchased, he redeemed He will carry it on. He will guide us, lead us, and bring us to where? To completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Whenever we then get to heaven and will dwell with him forever. And he will reign forever and ever. Friends, this is a song just for us. And there we see verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This is what we're working towards. So that's chapters 14 and 15. Again, the the eastern shore, the western shore, worry and worship. But again, I want to go back to that main point in verse 3 of chapter 15. That the Lord is a warrior and the Lord is his name. I don't want us in the midst of all the beauty and all the things that's in these two chapters to miss that. Because I think this is the point we need to walk away from. And I think in particular we need to know this and hear this. Because I think that there is a particular danger for us. To read stories like this in Exodus 14 and 15 and go, oh, God's so powerful, so amazing. And we ascribe all of this to God the Father, executing judgment against Egypt, saving his people in powerful ways. We ascribe that to the Father, but not necessarily to Jesus. We wouldn't necessarily say it out loud if we were asked, but there is a a tendency, I think each of us kind of have this uh, bent towards looking at the Old Testament and seeing these stories of of judgment and consequence and wrath and going, oh, that's God the Father. But Jesus, he comes in the New Testament. We almost feel like we have to make excuses for God in the Old Testament. No, 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 that's not God, but Jesus, that's who you need to look at. It's almost like it's a good cop, bad cop routine. Is that what God is doing? Here's all the consequences for your sin. Jesus shows up and goes, hey, I'll get you out of it. Just just believe in me. You can get away from, from dad's consequences. But friends, that's just absolutely not the way to read the Bible. Um, that's a heresy, also that. Um, and it is pitting two persons of the Trinity up against one another. And here's the point I want us to walk away with today. The, the conclusion is the description of God as a warrior in Exodus in chapters 14 and 15 is an exact description of Jesus Christ. That he is a warrior. And why would I say that? If you went through our Hebrews Bible study that we went through earlier this semester, this is how the author of Hebrews begins in Hebrews 1.3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. The exact expression that Jesus Christ is the exposition of God the Father. 
Exactly. Everything that God is, Jesus is. He is God. They are uh, triune in their divinity. The God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one in their essence, three in their persons. They are not three different gods. They are one God. And Jesus is the exact expression of the Father. So some people will say, well, that's not my Jesus. Now, again, I'm from Louisiana, so I just hear that with a southern accent. People just go, that's not my Jesus, y'all. My Jesus wouldn't do that. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression before. I want to go back to what we said earlier. That pronoun, my, there, is not one of identification. That's one of ownership. It says, this is my Jesus. And my Jesus wouldn't do the things in here. Not my Jesus. He wouldn't come as a warrior. That's not, that's not the uh, Jesus that I know. Coming with judgment against people who've rebelled against God. No, 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 no. That's not my Jesus. And friends, if we aren't careful, we then will construct this image of Jesus that is not who he actually is. And we need to understand Jesus is not something that we can simply mold to suit our preferences or our ideologies of the day. That's literally the definition of an idol. It's what the Israelites will do in a few chapters with the golden calf. They still praise God, but then they made this idol of a golden calf that they could get their minds around, that they formed for themselves. Friends, there are many who are in church this morning around the world that are worshiping an idol of Jesus that looks more like themselves than God. And people will say, well, no, that's the God of the Old Testament, but Jesus in the New Testament, he's different. I've talked about this before, and I'll talk about it till I'm blue in the face because we've got to understand the person of Jesus. We have to see him for who he is. And we have to see Jesus not just in the Gospels, but in the entire New Testament. So what I would say, just read to the end. And that image of Jesus is who Jesus really is. And we need to see the different things that Jesus is coming to accomplish in his first coming and in his second. And not separate the two or pit the two against one another. Jesus came first in the Gospels, born of a virgin, living a perfect life, to come and save his enemies, to die in your place. Because friends, you were the enemy. I was the enemy. We rebelled against God and said, God, I've got a better way for my life. And we sinned against him and we deserved his punishment and his wrath. But Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came gentle and lowly in heart. And all those who were without hope were drawn to him. Friends, that is gloriously true. He is full of compassion and grace. And those who need a savior are drawn to him. No matter what you've done, no matter what your track record is, he can save you if you believe in him. That is gloriously true. But friends, he then died died and he was buried he rose again and he ascended that's where he sits right now on his throne and one day he will return and when he returns the description we see as we read earlier in the apostles creed is that he will come to judge the living and the dead that's what first peter says is the image we see of what cindia read earlier in revelation 19 And again, just to read a couple of those things again of what John's revelation of Jesus in this chapter 19 is like. This is Jesus. There was a rider on a white horse and its rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. That's Jesus. He has a tattoo that no one knows but him. I went to uh, Israel a few years ago, and there's the oldest continual tattoo shop there in the world. I was so close to getting a tattoo. I chickened out. Just There it is. But if I wanted a tattoo, I would love to have a tattoo that no one knows except me. That's Jesus' tattoo. That no one, a name that written that no one knows except himself. His robe is dipped in blood. His name is called the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him. He's their commander. He is their captain. And they're all wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword comes from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh king of kings and lord of lords as he rides back on that day to judge all of those who stand in and of themselves in their sin and friends he will not on that day leave the guilty unpunished as he will come to judge every single one of us will stand before him and we will either on our own go i hope that i can be forgiven for what i've done and none of us can stand or we will hide behind the blood of the lamb who died in our place 
We say we trust in him. We gave our lives to him. We followed him. The only way I can get her in is by what he has done for me. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's the only hope I have that his life and his righteousness has been credited to me. And I can then enter in then. And death and judgment pass over me because it fell on him instead. But whenever he comes for all those who are not in him, friends, he then brings judgment. And we see that Jesus is infinitely gracious and forgives anyone who trusts in him. And he is also infinitely just and will judge all those who have instead trusted in themselves. He's compassionate and gracious, but also not leaving the guilty unpunished. And do you know what that description sounds oddly like? It sounds like God in Exodus chapter 34. When God tells his name to Moses, we'll get to this later on in the year. This is what God tells him. Here's my name. The Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. It's God the Father and God the Son, the exact expression. When I was a kid, I loved those little highlight magazines. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. They got all these little things for kids to do. My favorite thing in there was Spot the Difference. I had two pictures. They looked similar, but there were a few differences. You had to try to find the differences. But if you have God the Father and God the Son and you're trying to spot the differences, you will find no difference. They are the same. He is the exact expression of the Father. So therefore, we can also conclude from our text today that the Lord is a warrior and that Jesus is his name. And why does that matter? I think partly because we have a a bit of an anemic view of Jesus. We think of kind of Jesus, meek and mild, really gentle, kind, sweet, not not very loud spoken. Yeah, he flipped the tables that one time. That was was kind of an anomaly. Other than that, he's like really nice. We don't have a picture of Jesus as a warrior. Now, that matters because if you've ever felt like the Israelites felt on the western shore, hemmed in by the wilderness and the Red Sea and enemies bearing down on you, if you've ever felt worry and despair and hopelessness and being surrounded by an enemy that you feel like you cannot defeat, that appears unconquerable as they close in around you, particularly our last and our great enemy, which the Bible describes as death itself, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be abolished is death. It is our great enemy, our last enemy. If you've ever walked through a situation where you felt that bearing in on you, and I know the people who are in this room. I've preached at the funerals of stillborn children and infants that didn't make it to their first birthday and teenagers that didn't make it to college and parents They were gone before we were ready. And friends, I've preached at my father's funeral, my grandmother's funeral, my grandfather's funeral. And if you have ever felt death and sorrow and suffering weighing in around you and you face an enemy that feels unconquerable, who is the Jesus that we need then? Friends, we need a warrior Jesus who has gone in front of us and conquered our enemy, defeated our enemy in our place, and then we walk behind him on dry ground in safety to the other shore. And so then we don't have to be afraid because our Jesus is a warrior Jesus. We can stand firm and be still because Jesus will fight for us and that our Jesus is a warrior Jesus. We can mourn, but not like those who don't have hope because our Jesus is a warrior Jesus. We can gather together and sing at a funeral because our Jesus is a warrior Jesus. And we can stand boldly in the face of our enemy that we can't defeat on our own and shout in his face, where death is your victory, where death is your sting, because our Jesus is a warrior Jesus. We know the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, our warrior. I'll close with this quote from one of my favorite authors, speakers, Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny's written extensively on suffering and pain. She was paralyzed as a teenager. She was a great swimmer and diver. She dove into a lake and it was too shallow and she fractured her spine. She was quadriplegic her whole life. 
has battled a number of counts of breast cancer, began a ministry for those suffering around the world, and she's helped so many people in need. Her, a book that uh, her and another uh, wrote together, When God Weeps, was the book that helped me the most after my dad passed away. I just, I'm so grateful for Johnny's ministry. If you haven't heard of her, go listen and read everything that she does. I'll close with this quote, though, from her. As again, she's seen this kind of suffering and these kind of enemies coming around. Here's what she writes. She said, here at our ministry, we refuse to present a picture of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, a portrait that tugs at your sentiments or pulls at your heartstrings. That's because we deal with so many people who suffer. And when you're hurting hard, you're neither helped nor inspired by a syrupy vision of the Lord. Like those sugary, sentimental images many of us grew up with. You know what I mean? Jesus with his hair parted down the middle, surrounded by cherubic children and bluebirds. Come on, admit it. When your heart is being wrung out like a sponge, when you feel like Morton's salt is being poured into your wounded soul, you don't want a thin, pale, emotional Jesus who relates only to lambs and birds and babies. You want a warrior Jesus. You want a battlefield Jesus. You want a, his rigorous and robust gospel to command your sensibilities to stand at attention. To be honest, many of the sentimental hymns and gospel songs of our heritage don't do much to hone that image. One of the favorite words of hymn writers in days gone by was sweet. It's a term that doesn't have the edge on it that it once did. When you're in a dark place, when lions surround you, when you need strong help to rescue you from impossibility, you don't want sweet. You don't want faded pastels and honeyed softness. You want mighty you want the strong arm of an unshakable grip of a God who will not let you go no matter what. And take heart, friends, because that is your Jesus. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord, Jesus Christ, is his name. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed at your power and your might and your grace and the ways in which you, even when we grumble, even when we complain, even when we continue to turn back or forget your faithfulness, the Lord, yet still you pursue, still you purchase, still you redeem, still you carry, still you bring, and still one day we will meet you face to face. Lord, would you help each of us as we walk in our own wilderness to see you in your totality, not just an anemic part, kind of pieced together version of you, but the entire picture of you, full of grace and truth and justice and mercy. Well, that we can see you as you truly are. That we can see you as a warrior who has come to fight for your people, defeating our last and greatest enemy. And the hope that that can bring us as we then turn around and no matter what death may throw at us, we will turn around and see it nothing more but just lying strewn dead on the shore of the Red Sea. Because you fought for us. And you have accomplished what you set out to do. And it is finished. Help us to rest in that. Help us to be still. Help us to trust. And help us to hope in you. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.